amazing how many different pairs of glasses you need as you get older. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness." Certainly most of us recognize those words written long ago in terms of our nation's experience, but not so very long ago in the grand scheme of God's creation. They are, of course, the opening paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, signed in the Congress of the 13 United States of America on July 4th, 1776, just 239 short years ago. Such a profound and radical document setting the course for more than two centuries of American individualism, that rugged, self-sufficient, pioneer spirit that built a nation which became a world power. Now, it may surprise you to know that our nation's founding fathers and Methodism's founding father, John Wesley, were not at all in agreement concerning the desire of the American colonies to be free and independent from British rule. See, Wesley was loyal to the crown and an Anglican priest loyal to the Church of England, even though his Methodist movement was often at odds with the corruption in the English church of the day. Now, he was for religious freedom, to be sure, but he was no supporter of the American cause for autonomy. In fact, in his paper, A Calm Address to Our American Colonies, that was published just one year before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, he states... Ten times over, in different words, you profess yourselves to be contending for liberty. But it is a vain, empty profession, unless you mean by that threadbare word a liberty from obeying your rightful sovereign and from keeping the fundamental laws of your country. And this undoubtedly it is which the confederated colonies are now contending for. See, Wesley had no love for the American Revolution, 
and American Methodists in the colonies were quick to detach themselves from Wesley's political stance. Now, I give you that brief history lesson because I think it firmly establishes that liberty is often a matter of perspective. The Founding Fathers proclaimed that liberty meant separation from British rule, while John Wesley proclaimed that liberty was subject to the sovereignty of law. Revolution, in Wesley's mind, was lawlessness. Now, how is it, I can't help but wonder, that two points of view concerning liberty, both sides professing their belief in and obedience to the Creator can be so fundamentally opposed to one another. I mean, they can't both be right, can they? So while you're pondering that, consider this. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we consider that in the context, perhaps it's not a question of who's right and who's wrong. Maybe it's a question of what really constitutes liberty, not in the worldview, but rather in God's kingdom. So fast forward 239 years to present day America. The culmination of all the founding fathers established is right here, right now. We're living in the midst of it. And while there's no question that this nation is far and above any other in terms of freedom and liberty afforded to its people, we all must admit it's far from perfect. It falls far short of even our rudimentary understanding of the glory of God and what he intends for his kingdom and his people. I mean, we only have to look around us to see evidence of the broken, fallen world in which we live. Even in this great nation, we have people who cannot afford the basic necessities like food, shelter, clothing, health care. Government in all its worldly might has neither the wisdom nor the power to solve these basic human problems. Never mind complex issues of civil rights, freedoms of religion or speech, or defining the boundaries and division of governmental power. See, it occurs to me that our quest for independence and liberty, which began more than two centuries ago, seems to have spiraled into something the founders did not intend. The Declaration of Independence, while a document that's true to its title with respect to the British crown, was also very much a declaration of dependence on the divine providence of God. 
Could it be that we as a nation have detached ourselves from the truth concerning liberty and freedom? Is there, in fact, as John Wesley maintained, ever really liberty in the absence of the authority of law? And while we're at it, whose law exactly? See, Romans 13 talks about the authority of governments, and most translations read, There is no authority except from God. Now, the Greek word there is hupo, which means under rather than from. So a more correct translation might be, there is no authority except under God. You see, if we say that all authority is from God, the implication might be that God endorses or approves all governments. And I wonder if that is indeed the case. However, if we say that all authority is under God, then the implication is that legitimate governments are those which uphold righteous virtues and values. Any that move outside those boundaries may have usurped the authority they've been given and might be illegitimate. You see, God upholds the principle of government He does not necessarily condone the behavior of government. So what does this mean to us as Christ followers? Well, it means that we have a Christian responsibility to participate in the governmental process. It means we have a responsibility to live within the laws established by governments. It means we have the responsibility to pray for and support our leaders in government But it does not ever mean that we have to put government, government policies, or even laws above God and the word of God. See, what we have to understand is that this position, this position of putting God ahead of government, is what put Jews and then Christians at odds with kings and emperors and principalities and governments since recorded history began. It means that like Jesus was during his earthly ministry, the pursuit of God today and the authority of Christ over government and earthly authority makes you and me radicals in the worldview. We're radicals. We are radically different, radically opposed to the world's fallen state. We are radically at odds with sin and with death. We are radically against the taking of innocent life. We are radically against redefining and cherry-picking the sacred word of God to suit our own agendas. We are radically in favor of righteousness and holiness And the things of God. And we have as free Americans an opportunity to express our radical Christian viewpoint each time we go to the polls. Now I have expressed to many before what the true godly nature of freedom is. And I will restate it right here. In honor of that free will choice that each of you has the privilege to make in this country. God created humans with the ability to make choices. And in that regard, we have freedom. 
But our freedom is limited to God's authority and sovereignty. Remember what God told Adam in the garden. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Freedom, but with limits. Many people erroneously think that freedom is autonomy, which is the ability to do whatever one chooses without fear of judgment from a higher authority. The truth is that nothing in God's creation has autonomy. We live by the limits God places on us. Our freedom is limited by God's freedom, and only God has absolute freedom. God's freedom trumps our freedom. Society today leans towards secular humanism, which is human autonomy. We cry liberty, equal rights, tolerance, diversity, all lofty words whose meanings we have twisted to fit our wants and agendas. If we don't like the restrictions placed on us by scripture, we simply ignore scripture in the name of all that we cry about. Our watchword has become fairness when it should be righteousness. We have replaced real God-given American liberty with the slavery of universalism, which is a false teaching where all religions are equal and there are multiple paths to heaven. We have mistaken tolerance for love when the lack of accountability inherent in tolerance is the most unloving thing we could possibly do to one another. We turn a blind eye to unrighteousness so as not to offend, and in so doing, we clear the pathway to hell because there is then no accountability for the unrighteous. You see, we've chosen the broad way to oblivion instead of the narrow gate that leads to God. So friends, herein rests the truth about liberty. When we accept that our liberty is God-given and therefore under his authority, when we submit to his authority as given to us in his word, the Bible, when we cease rebellious efforts to be autonomous and make our own rules, then and only then do we enjoy freedom. So I encourage each of you to exercise your right to choose whenever given the opportunity. Because like it or not, there are those in public office who do not share your radical Christ-following viewpoint. There are those who would silence the voice of the church, your voice, in the world today. There are those who would appease evil by calling it good, even to the extent of allowing the continued martyrdom of Christians around the world when we have the resources and the ability to stop it. I encourage you to show them that there is still a measure of godliness in the land because we have the God-given free will to be radicals for Jesus. So where do we go from here? We, a congregation of radicals. 239 years later, where is it we go next? I submit to you that there are two things that we need now. The first thing is prayer. 
We need prayer now more than ever. In 2 Chronicles 7.14 it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God hears the prayers that radiate from penitent hearts. Prayers of confession and repentance move God into the actions of forgiveness and healing. The second thing we need now is a renewed declaration. A declaration that builds on the one our founding fathers ratified. One that reaffirms their original intent to honor those unalienable rights of life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness given to us by our Creator. We need a declaration, first individually, but then collectively as the body of Christ. We need a declaration not of independence, but of absolute dependence on God. Let's ratify our own declaration of dependence this morning. One that elevates our hearts and minds into, as the Founding Fathers wrote, a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. One that puts us squarely within the will of our sovereign God. The amazing thing is, we don't even need to put pen to paper this morning to craft such a declaration. We have one, ready-made. We've been reciting it for years. My question is, are we merely reciting it or are we living it as the declaration it was meant to be? Do we just say the words or are we taking them to heart, applying them in our lives? So here it is. The declaration of dependence. I invite you to say it with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's it. We've had the words all along. We simply need to abide in them and they in us. Through this declaration, we declare that Christ Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. We declare that we believe without Him we are lost, and with Him we are saved. In this we fully accept our responsibility to lovingly lead others to Him as He commanded in the Great Commission. With all of this in our hearts and minds, we declare dependence on our Father God, the same yesterday, today, And tomorrow, we declare this day 
our dependence day. And using the same language our forefathers did so long ago in the founding document of this, our one nation under God, we as members of the body of Christ in community mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. All glory to God the Father, Christ the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, forever and ever. God bless America. Amen. As the ushers prepare to receive our gifts and our tithes this morning, I want to remind you that this is the first Sunday of July, the first Sunday of the month we celebrate communion, to be able to come and fellowship the Lord's table. 